Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dave McGuire. And I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. We're sorry to interrupt your podcast this evening, but we come to you with a very important message. Are you tired of hearing the squeaking of our chairs? Are you tired of hearing a distant echo in the background? Are you tired of hearing my lips smack the moment before I talk? I know I am. But you know how we can fix that? We need help from you. You see, Rome was not built in a day. It was built over many months, and also with lots of money. And lots of marble. We don't actually need the marble. No, we don't need it. It'd be nice, but... Okay, let's just stick to things that we actually need. Okay, sorry. Okay, thank you. Anyways, if you feel like you want to help us with our squeaking chairs, or massive echo, and Brian's incessant lip-smacking, please go to www.nerdonomy.com. Click on Donate, where your money will go to helping our nerd cave thrive and helping Brian get over his speech impediment. And to go to our need for lots and lots of Hot Pockets. We must have the Hot Pockets. Eric? Yes, Brian? I've always wanted to drive the TARDIS. Oh, Brian, we have talked about this a hundred times. You have to be certified. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. We'll have to go to the TARDIS MV. The, the, Department of, the Department of TARDIS Vehicles, whatever the hell it's called. Yes. T- t- really? Oh, okay. All right. Uh, fine. 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 My dad, when he taught me how to drive, took me to a parking uh, lot. All Can right, Brian. S- Brian. Can we go someplace safe? Where do you want to go? I want to see the future. All right. You see that, that lever over there? I see the lever. Pull the lever. All right. Good. You see those dials over there? Uh-huh. Flip the dials forward at least, you know, a, l- a little ways. Wait, is it forward clockwise or forward counterclockwise? Do you want to drive the TARDIS or, or not? Just figure it out on your own. Come on. All right. All right, great. Uh, now, see that big button over there? Yeah. It does nothing, so don't touch it. Okay. But you see that other button over there? Why can't I touch it if it does nothing? We don't talk about it. Okay. Touch the other button over there. Okay. All right. You did it. We're in the future. Awesome. Anything you see, though... You can't bring back with you. You understand? Uh, but why? Because it'll mess things up. Okay. All right. Here we go. Huh. I don't... I did... Uh, I didn't imagine the future looking so old. Desolate. No, I was going to say rustic. Rustic? Yeah. Do you yeah. know where we are? Uh, I'm assuming we're on some sort of alien stone structure. We must be thousands of years into the future after... Humanity's been just completely destroyed. No, I've been here before. You have? On vacation. Not in a TARDIS. No. On vacation in the future? No, no, no. We're in the past. What? We're in Mexico. Oh, shoot. I'm, I'm totally hit This is there. why you need to be certified before I let you It was my you first time. Seriously. You know what? Excuses? No. Hey, okay, we're here. We might as well look around. So, yeah, Did I, you say something about the Teotihuacan? Were uh, people around here at one point? Yeah, they inhabited this entire area here. They're the ones who actually built the, the pyramid originally. The Aztecs built it up a little higher. That's why we're a little bit lower than I remember. But uh, anyway, let, let's let's what take a few steps down and, and look around. I, I, I don't know. Nobody knows. Okay, Eric, we've been walking around for three hours. There's not a soul nearby here. I think we should just go home. I, You know... Th- this is, must be the period after they had already left. I mean, the Aztecs haven't arrived yet, so... Oh, well. Maybe we'll try going forward a few years and see if we can catch the Aztecs. All right, fine. All right, let's go back to TARDIS. All right, flip the switch. That's the return switch. <sighs> you want to go in the kitchen? I'm, I'm kind of hungry. You want something? Like a sandwich? Yeah, I love the sandwich. All right. Oh, crap. I think I know what happened to the entire civilization. Why? They're here, in the TARDIS. We gave them three hours to walk inside. We're taking them forward in time. Brian, do you know what this means? We're having tacos for dinner? No, we're not having tacos for dinner. It means that we were responsible for the entire civilization disappearing off the Earth. I was hoping for tacos. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. Eric, how are you, sir? My friend, I couldn't be better. Literally. I don't think I could be any better than I am right now. Really? 
Really? What's happened that's made you so magnificent? I'll tell you in a minute. I'm okay. just letting you know. Okay. I'm in a good mood. Fair enough. You can ask how I am, or is this going to be a one-sided no, conversation? No, I'm just concerned with myself. No, that's fine. You, 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 you can keep to yourself. It's yeah, fine. That's fine. Brian, how are you? I'm just kidding. Oh, now you ask for my how I'm doing. <laughs> that makes me feel so much better about myself. <laughs> I'm Go just, ahead. I'm, I'm playing the Catholic guilt card, so I'm doing. I can see that. You're quite um, good at it. I think you were born with it, like, in your, in it's, your figurative it's encoded. pocket. Yeah, yeah, it comes, uh, yeah. It yeah. just comes with everybody who's from there. Anyway, I'm tired. I yeah. gotta say, yeah, I'm very tired. So, folks, if I sound groggy at all, um, I apologize because I've just had a long day, unsurprisingly. Yeah, just, yeah. you know. You know, well, you work hard. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's understandable. just an average work day, but, you know, we're, we're recording on a weeknight, which is an, a little, little unusual for us. Yeah, and a little bit late, too. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we recorded later, that's for sure. Oh, God, yes, we have. Yes, we have. We've recorded at, like, 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, thankfully, that's not the case this time. You yeah. have some feedback you I, want to share with us. I, I do. Uh, we have feedback from... feedback. Are we doing it British now? Uh, why not? So we should make it a segment, because we always someone, start with can, it. I know we have listeners in the United Kingdom. Can someone please comment on our on our dialects? Because I have a feeling that it's kind of good, but not... Okay, I got I got one better. Well, let's do this as a segment going forward. The listener feedback segment because we already do it. incomplete British. Yeah, but we should do it in British at least at least the introduction portion, and we should do it with like a masterpiece theater type music in the background. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start it off now, and then what I challenge is our uh, listeners who are English send us your recordings of you doing it, and whoever produces the most stoic sounding one will feature it on the show. Yeah. I agree. That's a great idea. Okay, so I'm going to start it off with my terrible uh, imitation British accent. And for those actual listeners who have either a convincing British accent, you don't have to actually be from England. But if you are, you you kind of have an advantage. So yeah. you might as well, well I mean, try. I know, I know I, and this, I think everyone will agree with this, too. The English are the most critical of the British dialects because it is so versatile. Yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll be ripped a new one, but that's fine. Turned outward. That's okay. <laughs> over this, but that's okay. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so here we go. Here we go. Uh, Sean, please cue the uh, Masterpiece Theater music. This week in listener feedback. Oh, very good. Oh, very good. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. That was good. That was good, right? I liked yeah. it. Yeah. Send us your real ones, folks. <laughs> That's it? Well, what more do you want? You're not going to read it? In well, the of course I'm going to read it. I'm just talking about the introduction portion. Oh, okay. God, Brian. Oh, I thought you actually meant like they were going to re- repeat the feedback back to us in their no, British accent. No, just the, just the, oh my lord. Listeners, I am tired. You have to excuse yes, me. Yes, you're clearly tired. Anyway, let's get to the actual listener feedback, shall Please. we? Uh, this is from Bernadita, and uh, I'm gonna re- I think I'll read this one in its entirety, just because uh, it's not quite as long as some of the ones we normally get. I usually kind of paraphrase, for those of you who, who don't know, I just kind of give you the gist of these great emails that we get, because sometimes they're so long, and if we did all of them that we received every week, then we would we would have a whole show that was just listener feedback. But uh, anyhow, Bernadita says, Hi, love both podcasts. You guys are doing an amazing job. I'm an undergraduate microbiology student in London, originally from Lithuania, and your podcast is a great alternative to an otherwise very scientific lifestyle. I thought it would be great if you could provide some show notes for the episode. That's because you often mention some good books, museums, or other things, and I often forget the names before I can go and check them out. So it would be useful to have a list of various things that you mentioned during the podcast, and one can go back and Google them when the opportunity arises. Great idea, Bernadetta. We talked about it uh, before we started recording tonight, and we're going to do it. Very limited short notes, because we have a very limited amount of time during the week, but we will put out things that we mentioned, like books, museums, uh, references that we've done, documentaries, things like that, things that would be of interest to you. Uh, she continues, Also, it would be great if you could do an episode on the seven wonders of the ancient world. Oh, and I just listened to one of the episodes on Egypt and was wondering how were the names given for people in Egypt, where Pharaoh was named according to some traditions, relations to gods, etc., uh, but what about ordinary people? What were their names like? Oh, and in general, where does the tradition of being named after your predecessors come from? Regards, Bernadita. So, uh, great questions. I can only really speak to the Egyptian ones, personally. Yeah. Uh, the pharaohs of Egypt were oftentimes named after some sort of deity, and it was usually something that was tied in to what was popular at the time, right? That wasn't always the case. Some of the earliest pharaohs were named after very simple words, like great and powerful and things like that. Uh, it kind of got the idea across that they were significant and important people. 
Uh, but then you have later times like Seti, for example, who's named after the god Set, who is a god of chaos, but also a god of the desert lands. So, you know, there was kind of a, a yin-yang kind of balance going on there. Uh, and then you have, you know, individuals um, who were named, really essentially had their own birth name, if you will, their prenomen, as it was called. And as they became pharaoh, then adopted a much more formal title. And it was not uncommon for them to connect it in some way to another member of their family, one of their predecessors. So, for example, there were 11 Ramesses, and they were all trying to actually emulate Ramesses II, who wasn't even a member of their family for the later Ramesses. You know, they weren't even connected. Uh, but they kept trying to take that name because here was a previous great, powerful pharaoh, and they were trying to emulate that. So there's no real one answer to the question. Um, in terms of the Egyptian common people and how they were named, not all that different from the way the names of the, the pharaohs were given out. From those few people that did kind of start out as simple uh, kind of peasant type folks, if you will, and then move up into the ranks of upper class and actually have their name recorded, many of them were simple and named after uh, local deities and what have you. Gee, Eric, I never thought you would make a reference from ancient Egypt. How is this possible? This has never happened on the show before. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, I will say there's a lot of uh, common trends there because the names of the popes, too. Uh, of course, shocking. I make a, I bring it Oh, up. you give me garbage for making an Egypt comment, and here you go throwing Catholicism. Shocking. Well, the same thing. The popes would take the name of a previous pope, generally, um, because they wanted to share in their in their, their mindset or their legacy, which is so it's so unusual when a pope takes the uh, a non- dedicated name. Pope Francis is the first pope in over 1,200 years who has not been the name of somebody else. Well, pope except Lando for St. Francis of Assisi. Pope, pope Lando was pope, the... Pope Lando? Yes, he was from the Calrissian province of uh, Italy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Isn't that great? Uh, pope Lando was the last pope to uh, to not to be, have an original name uh, between them, him and Pope Francis. Yeah, he's also the one who outlawed uh, Carbonite. He did. Yeah. He did indeed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, so anyhow, well, the last part of her question, in general, where does the naming uh, tradition of being named after your predecessors come from? I don't think anyone can really pinpoint that down exactly, but I think some of the oldest examples would certainly come from the ancient Near East in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. Those would probably be some of the oldest recorded. Sure, yeah. And I think, honestly, that would make a fascinating episode topic. The history of, I mean, the history of names would just take forever, but... yeah see how naming conventions have changed throughout the course of history. I wouldn't be surprised if it has its origins, oh, I'd be almost certain that it has its origins in prehistoric tribal society. That, yeah. you know, if you had a name of a powerful leader, their child was almost certainly going to be named that same name. I wouldn't be surprised. And I, I have a strong kind of spidey sense sensation here that uh, this may not actually be cross-cultural parallel development. This may be a situation where it was the structure and then as humanity migrated out that structure carried around it could, it could theoretically go back that far enough. Yeah, it is possible. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting theory. Yeah, well, Bernadita, <laughs> hey, to back that up. But. Yeah, no, that's I, I believe that. I yeah. wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Um, Bernadita, hey, thanks for the question. What a great one. What a great email. And uh, shall we move on to the topic? Absolutely. Question? And let us also state the reason why I am so excited tonight. Why I am so very happy tonight. Uh, because we have a special guest. Ladies and gentlemen, you had the privilege of hearing her for only a short time on one of our previous episodes. However, she has graciously volunteered to come back and discuss a topic that is very close to her in many ways. I would like to introduce my wife, my friend, the mother of my children, Martha Vasquez Brickmont. Hello, my love. Hi. Hi, Martha. How are Hi. you? Hi. Good. Thank you. Hi. How are you? Good. Yeah. Excellent. So we are going to talk about something that uh, you have a pretty intimate knowledge of. I would say perhaps not even by choice, but just because <laughs> of where you were born in the world. Uh, but we thought it would be really fun. Why don't we do a history of Mexico? Yeah. 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 But we only have one hour. Right. <laughs> let us do a let me, let me let me rephrase that. Let us do a brief history of Mexico, which is a very very difficult task. Uh, and keep in mind, folks, this is going to be kind of a general overview. Obviously, we're going to be covering quite a few 
uh, centuries in history. But I, I encourage you folks to uh, to go out there and do some additional research with some resources that we will now provide you uh, in the episode and also in the form of show notes. Our neighbors to the south have a truly fascinating uh, and rich cultural and political history yeah. to them. And uh, we are indebted to them for, for many things, Mo- namely half of the United States, pretty much. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, this is a topic that is absolutely worth looking into more and learning more about. Oh, of course. And I learned a lot through my research. Martha, even you learned a lot through your research. Yeah, I was surprised of the new things I learned about that I didn't know. It's pretty cool. And I'm really happy to have done this. Let, okay, well, let, let's talk a little bit more about your personal history in Mexico, because you came to America when you were five, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you were born in Mexico. What, what do you what do you remember of it as a child? Mostly family life. Yeah. I was born in Mexico City. I remember the city, basically my school and stuff like that. Just limited memories for a five-year-old. But and we've been back to the house that you grew up in uh, since then. We've traveled back to Mexico uh, once together, twice you've been back. Uh, and all that, and all those years, has it really changed all that much from you remember? Actually, hasn't. Yeah. It's funny how time didn't pass by. It passed by in my relatives, but like around it, no, it didn't that much. I w- have to say though, I was a little disappointed. Uh, we didn't have any sheep on the roof, and oh. I, I was very disappointed. <laughs> Why is that dis- a disappointment? Oh, my grandma is a well was a big animal lover, so. In our property, we used to have sheep. She used to have chickens, hens, and big piggies. Big piggies. And for those of you who uh, who didn't catch it originally, we're talking about Mexico City. <laughs> and we're not talking about the outskirts of Mexico City on a farm where we have acres for piggies and sheep and chicken to live. We're talking about a house right smack in an urban area, uh, densely populated, and yet she kept sheep. I love that. That's crazy. A little black one, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you mentioned Mexico City, and I mean, for, I mean, I remember this from from our world cultures class in high school. But I mean, that's the largest city in the world, both population wise and in land mass. It just it is a gigantic living area. Yeah. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but isn't also wasn't the name of the city what actually influenced the name of the country? Yes. Yeah. It was actually more the name of the tribe, the major tribe that. Influence the country's name, the Mexicas. Me- the Mexicas, okay. The we know them as the Aztecs, but the Mexica was their original name. Okay. And, like, and that influenced the name of Mexico. And it's interesting because they did not originally inhabit that area around Mexico, right? No. Uh, they came from further north, if I remember correctly. Yes, the land that they called it was Aztlan. Really, nobody knows where it is. You said that, you said that was Aztlan. Aztlan. Aztlan, okay. Not Assland. No, I didn't say Assland. Come <laughs> but, on. Really, there's nobody knows where it is, but people theorize that it might have been as north, like New Mexico, and maybe South California. Okay. In fact, during the Chicano movement in the 1960s, that was kind of a rallying point behind Mexican Americans. Was this idea that not only were they proud of where they had come from further south, but they actually originated where they were living now. Ah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you could see that a lot of like in high school groups like Mecha and it's a lot I think in San Jose State too. Mm-hmm. Like, we talked about that in our civil rights episode if you remember. Yeah. yeah. Indeed. Um well let's take a step back though, because the Aztecs is kind of the latter Mesoamerican tribe before Spanish conquest and all that stuff. So where does it where does the Mesoamerican tribes really start? Who's the first tribe to really inhabit that region? The couple first tribes were like the Olmecs. That's okay. one of the more ancient ones. Uh, Toltecs and the Chichimecas. The Chichimecas? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a great Greatest name, name <laughs> ever. <laughs> the Ch- Zapotecas. Uh, Mayas. Of course, Mayas, the Mayans, yep. of course. Yeah. They are now infamous because of the whole 2012 fiasco. Uh, no, I was going to say fiasco, but it's not really a fiasco. It's it wasn't. not like they planned it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, ready for this? We're going to make a really cryptic calendar, and then we're going to stop it on the year 2012. Why? Just to mess with history. <laughs> just to mess with them. It's just going to screw with them, man. It's going to be funny. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and what's it mean? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
that there were more of the ancient um, tribes, and they some of them actually um, migrated from Aztlan. Yeah, from further north. Yes. So when they came to Mexico, what is now Mexico City, though, was extremely different. I mean, it was essentially a large lake, was it not? Yes. Lake Texcoco. Texcoco. Yes. yes. I know, I'm saying it like a white guy. It's okay. I've, but I've, these names are so cool sounding, though. They I really know. do. I envy Martha. I, and they're kind of fun to say, <laughs> I will say. Yeah. I, I, I envy you, sweetheart. You, you, you say it so naturally. And yet, I, I stumble over every single time. But I think it's so cute how, it's, how you make it sound. <laughs> well, I fi- I'll be really honest. I find the Mesoamerican languages, the different the names of it, just really, really interesting just to hear. Because it is so different than what the American mindset is of Mexico. Because we immediately think of Spanish. And obviously, Spanish right. was a cultural... What's the word? It was That, that cultural identity was, in a way, very strongly forced upon the people who were there, you know? Um, so to hear the na- the native words of those areas, it just, it's kind of almost mystical to me. In Mexico, there are 90 different dialects that are spoken, even to this day, believe it or not. Yeah, and, and there's some villages where they don't speak Spanish. They speak the, the yeah. word as a derivative of their native tongue. Right? I, I think it's even more so than the variation that you find in India, which is you know pretty incredible, considering you know how large a population is in India as well. But there obviously is the they are the the minority. Uh, Spanish is of course the primary language that is spoken. You know, like English is the primary spoken language right. here. And so then, Martha, I'm curious: is there other than Spanish? Is there like a one common meso uh, derived language that you can that people speak? Nahuatl. What is it? Nahuatl. Oh, Nahuatl. Yes, there's many still speak it, and also like in the Museum of Arqueología of archaeology in Mexico City, there's still um, a lot of, like, the sum, you know, where they summarize of what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Some of them are translated in Nahuatl for people and also in the pyramids of um, Teotihuacan. That's right. When we were there, uh, I remember you pointing that out to me in, in some of the, like, display areas. They have it written for, for folks who still speak the language and who come into the city to, to visit those locations. That, you know... I might be totally imagining this, but I don't think so. I think I'm remembering correctly. Did you not say your great-great-grandmother was essentially from one of those tribes? Yes. That is so cool. And she, you know, she married someone who was... Um, uh, Spanish. Who was more Spanish in, in his heritage, right? Yeah, my great-grandfather, uh, Felipe, was full-blood Spanish. He, ha- he had, like, light color eyes and lighter color air white and i remember you telling me a story that when she moved in with him essentially into their house it was such a strange experience for her sleeping in a bed that she would actually oftentimes sleep out on the porch yeah she will get her mat and sleep out on the porch because she didn't like it she didn't feel at home you could say and that's what just 150 years ago or less than that yes that's pretty incredible. I mean, I can imagine that situation happening when the Spanish first came into what is now Mexico. And yet there were still instances where that almost exact same scenario was playing out, only obviously much more friendly uh, <laughs> in generations later. That, that to me is kind of incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. It's almost, Mexico is kind of like a broken time machine. It really is. No, I'm serious. When you when we were walking around in Mexico City, you well, could walk. It's, that's funny because then our cold opens are, uh, an unspoken metaphor. It is, isn't the, it? Uh, it is kind of yeah, interesting. I, I totally planned that. Um, when we were yeah, walking, right. yeah, when we were walking around in Mexico City, you could walk around you know the corner and see a totally modern building mm-hmm. built right next to a colonial period building that's now being you know repurposed. And next to that is another building that was built a little bit before that, where half of the masonry is like an ancient Aztec temple. Yeah. And it's, it is like being in like a fractured time bubble where you walk around and just, you know, you have all these mixtures of history all around you. And th- th- I think that's pretty incredible. Uh, but we digress. Let's get back a little bit more to the topic. So we're talking, I don't want to talk too much about Mesoamerica, because even though it's the foundation for obviously what the Mexican uh, you know, nation would become, it isn't exclusively what Mexico is. No, because Mexico, as a country as we know right now, was born in the late 19th centuries. Yeah. Because before that, Mesoamerica was just accumulation of other countries like Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. And they'll share the same culture. Exactly. 
I do find it very interesting, though, and, and this is kind of the last kind of ancient topic that I think will bring us to more, you know, the, the Spanish um, conquest. But uh, Gonzalo... Ge oh, gosh. Honey, you're going to have to help me with this Guerrero? one. Guerrero? Thank you. Guerrero. So I'm just going to call him Gonzalo because I can say that. Uh, Gonzalo was a shipwrecked sailor who in 1511, who was sailing on a small caravel, and he and 15 other sailors got uh, caught up in a storm and were essentially shipwrecked. They were able to float on some debris that was left over uh, for several days until they floated down into the Yucatan Peninsula and ended up on the shores and Mayan-occupied territory. And after they were found, the Mayans immediately captured them. Uh, half of them were killed. The other half were sold into slavery. And this gentleman survives not only being in slavery, but is then taken to one of the local tribes within the Maya, ends up marrying the tribal leader's daughter, gains a name for himself as an able warrior in defending the tribe against other tribal warfare that was going on at the time, uh, and essentially makes a name for himself. He ends up having three kids with this woman and becomes the very first person to ever father children with a, uh, with a, uh, a native of, the, of that land. Uh, and is seen in Mexico today as kind of like a hero. I, I, I did some additional research, and it turns out there's been several books written on him since the 1980s. A lot of it is kind of fictional because we don't have a whole lot of information as to what he did before the actual shipwreck, and we only know of a few of his exploits in life because of people like Cortez, uh, who wrote about him you know, later. But there's all this kind of fanfare around him, which I thought was kind of interesting, because I've never heard of this guy before until I started doing research. Uh, but what a cool story. That basically sounds like Dances with Wolves. It kind of does. And it would totally make a great movie. They should do it. Yeah, it would. It would make a fantastic movie. And it's amazing because he does end up dying uh, some 20 years later while fighting against Cortez uh, to defend the Mayans against the Spanish takeover. Because the Mayans were some of the last holdouts. The Aztecs actually fell pretty quickly. It was the Mayans who continued to cause problems and the other local tribes who continued to cause problems for nearly 200 years. See, I find that really interesting because I always thought that the Mayans were uh, the predecessors of the Aztecs, but they you know they actually cohabited the area. Yeah, they were. Regions. They were predecessors in a sense in that the Mayan civilization was around before the Aztecs moved in, Yeah, but they also were contemporaries in that they existed at the same time. Right. So then it was the Incans who were the, the predecessors then, correct? Or were the Incans also cohabitative? Uh, a minor part of the Incas still survived around the Aztec, but now it wasn't such the big empire that it used to be. Right. Okay. Clearly I have much to learn, so there you go. <laughs> no worries. Uh, so do I. It's a big topic. But once the Spanish kind of establish their foothold hold right, and we end up having now situations where we don't have this willing <laughs> cohabitation, you have this more forced upon cohabitation, what was, what was the, the mood of the people? How did they react to Span the Spaniards originally coming in? First, they were happy. Because you, if you can imagine seeing... Um, Natives seeing this technically white guy, blondish hair, kind of like that, riding in the in the horse. They actually thought it was the god of um, Wichilipotli coming back from exile. Hmm. So that they welcomed him with gold, with you could say technically they made a big party for him. But later, this is kind of like that scene in Return of the Jedi for C three PO. <laughs> comes and finds C-3PO Hernan Cortez I see the connection now <laughs> I always wondered so really what we're saying is that Star Wars is actually a metaphor for colonialism there's a lot of metaphors flowing around this episode <laughs> gotta be careful with that please continue I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I, I just had to make a nerd reference but. Uh, so but Hernan Cortez and his troops seeing like all the wealth that they had they decided to attack and also in 1519 they came with that kind of mindset when they left Cuba because they heard like this myth of like a city of gold El Dorado uh, no no like they actually uh, I'm not that sure but they I think they actually named them like well they were the Aztecs well the Mexicas at the time so they were talking like it was in central Mexico and that it was full of richness, that mm. it was the most powerful empire at that time. 
So okay. So it was attractive. To... Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So they originally met with with this great fanfare, but then Cortez takes this as an opportunity while essentially everyone is pleased with him to screw them over. Yes. That's great. Isn't that yes. wonderful? And at that, when they were met in like the coast, uh, tribal leader, not the Aztecs, so, uh, like some of the minor tribes, offered them um, monetary offerings, slaves, and one of them was a famous Malinche, or in uh, her real name is Malintzin. Malintzin? Mm hmm. And the Malinche is very unpopular in Mexico. Now, why is that? Well, the Malinche um, was a great help to Cortes by translating to him, like uh, translating um, to the other tribes that he will free them from the Aztecs, that he will be like the saber and this stuff. So she will help him in that way conquer them. So she's kind of like a sellout. Yeah. Like a groupie. Yeah, and she actually married him and had children with him. Wow. And, well, that's a whole other topic, but in in a way, we have the story of La Llorona for her. Hmm. Well, what's, I, what I also find interesting is that um, Bernal Díaz de Castillero, he was a uh, another conquistador, and uh, he had teamed up with uh, Cortez in his conquering of, of the Mesoamerican lands. Uh, he was one person who was actually talking to Gonzalo uh, Gu Guerrero. Guerrero, uh, who, trying to convince him to come back to Spain and actually join on the side of the Spaniards, and he had refused. Uh, but one of his uh, other shipmates that had survived was actually recruited by Cortez at the same time that he recruited uh, La Maneche. Uh, and the two of them had actually tried to convince uh, Gonzalo to, to, to come back as well, but uh, instead it was a no-go and the two of them left with Cortez and uh, Gonzalo stayed behind to, to be with his adopted people. Yeah, when, so if you're in Mexico and you're against the country or stuff like that, that you're Mexican and you talk against your people, you usually call malinchista. So mm, so that's their word for traitor now. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And it has its origins all the way back in the very birth of, uh, of the Spanish conquest. There you go. That's fascinating. Well, since we're talking on the subject of the conquistadors, I would love to uh, talk about Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. Oh, you mean your your great ancestor? Uh, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that's true. I am an indirect descendant of Francisco de Coronado. Um, now, I don't want any trouble between the two of you. Well, what's interesting <laughs> is it's Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, so I'm kind of wondering. I find that that's, that's really, really interesting. I wonder if maybe far enough back our families are, are tied in Pro some way. Probably. That'd be uh, interesting. The Vasquez that you're talking about, does it have two Z's? No, it's it's with the S, so it's the Spanish spelling, for sure. Uh, Martha's a two Z. A two Z. Gotcha. Okay, so it's a similar name, but it was adopted with a different spelling. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, because I know the same thing is with Gonzalez. Gonzalez has the two Z's is, a, is Mexican in origin, and with the S at the end is Spanish in origin. Hmm. Well, there you go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, well, anyway, so, yeah, uh, to shed some light on this, so my... my my, my late grandmother, her maiden name was Coronado. She had the line of Coronado. Uh, my grandfather, uh, my great-grandfather, Tony Coronado, uh, was really the direct descendant. He was full-blood Spanish. Hmm. Um, and so it's kind of become indirect since my mother's generation. Uh, but, yeah, unfortunately, I'm the descendant of a conquistador uh, who traveled to Mexico in 1535 and became a political leader within the Mexican government that was created as, you know, under New Spain, basically, as part of the, the viceroy that was that was running. Essentially that, the, the colonial governorship. In, correct. In, in he actually words, traveled yeah. to Mexico in the entourage of the first viceroy, Antonio de uh, Mendoza. Hmm. So, Really? Yeah. Wow. So he was, and he eventually grew on to become the governor of the kingdom of Nueva uh, Galicia, uh, which is a province of New Spain. It's in northwest Mexico. Around the states of Jalisco, uh, Sinaloa, 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 Sinaloa. Thank you, and uh, Nayarit. Nayarit, yeah. There. Oh, wow, I got it right the first try. Very cool. Uh, good for you, Brian. You can do it. Well, I took Spanish class in high <laughs> and the school. Spanish so is did kicking I. In. Yeah, I, I can pronounce it fairly well. I just can't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> unfortunately, we could have some fun with that later, huh? <laughs> uh, my friend has a as a whole thing he says, and I, I know what it means, but he says it just so that people who speak Spanish natively uh, just get their heads turned and go, what did you just say? 
Es cuando era niña siempre jugaba con la electricidad. <laughs> And that means it means when I was a little girl, I always used to play with electricity. <laughs> that explains so much. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, what I started just, as a joke is actually a, a telling <laughs> in middle of your of your uh, of your childhood. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, it wasn't me. It was my friend who developed that catchphrase. I wish I could have come up with something like clever, but no. I would just say, mea abuela está en fuego. <laughs> that's like, that's all I would say. Which is really even more horrifying. My grandmother's on fire, so. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Donde está la biblioteca? You couldn't sound more white. I would just say. I only do it for her. When I try to sound uh, with an actual accent, uh, she doesn't like it. She likes it when I when I speak as white as possible. There you go. So, um, yeah, Coronado was kind of a footnote, I think. Cause he, I mean, he doesn't seem to... I'm sure that someone would, some scholar who wrote their whole dissertation on Coronado would probably argue with that. Oh, he just smashed his iPod against the wall while listening to that. <laughs> you now owe him one. Yeah, sure. So, um, <laughs> let's just go in and fast forward from there. Well, hold on. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I do want to talk a little bit ab about this misconception, anyhow, that the Spanish came in and everything was suddenly Mexico. It, it wasn't that quick, folks. You know, it took a good 200 years before you really saw you know, the, the true colonial period coming into effect. And essentially, what was going on during that time, honey? From Let's let's kind of generalize it. Let's say, like, from the 1500s to about the 1650s and around there. Okay. About 1523, the first Spanish school was founded by a, a priest named Pedro de Gante in Lake Texcoco. In the lake? Uh, yes, in the So land. the children wore flotation devices while they were taught. <laughs> no. Which is very advanced for the time. Very <laughs> advanced. <laughs> well, it's in the land that was used to be La Grande Nochtitlan. So, and, you know, I, I think I'm correct in this, but correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the lake itself was actually filled in uh, intentionally by, originally, the Aztecs to a certain degree, right? Yes, uh, they were um, called lotes. Like, there were little islands that they okay. usually also used to grow more crops and feed their people. And then eventually they completely filled in the entire lake because all of modern Mexico day Mexico City today sits on top of that lake, right? I think so. Not I'm not that sure. I, I'm that pretty sure the majority of it sits on the sits on what was the lake. Oh yeah. The majority of Mexico City, yeah. But I don't know who and how long it took for the lake to start filling in. Yeah, which they found out in nineteen eighty five was a really bad idea when a massive earthquake hit Mexico City and the liquefaction area that was created underneath the city caused entire buildings to sink in. Basically, created a sinkhole. I imagine. Yeah. yeah, parts of Mexico City sink at a rate of one foot a year. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's also true in Guadalupe, right? Or is I mean, is Guadalupe? It's near New Mexico. Is Mexico City, right? Uh, not... la, la Basilica. Uh, yeah, exactly, La Basilica. Yeah. yeah, the old one by Zócalo in the center of Mexico. That's a more colonial one. And yes, if you see it from far away, it looks kind of tilted. Right. Um, and this is the massive cathedral in the heart of Mexico City mm -hmm. for those who have not been there. Yeah, which is in honor, of course, of the Virgin of Guadalupe, uh, which is the famous depiction of uh, St. Juan Diego. He was only recently canonized about 10 years ago. St. Juan Diego saw the Virgin Mary, and there's the whole story that... Uh, The, one of the miracles that's attributed to him while he was living was that he was told to, one of the signs was that when he saw the Virgin, he asked him, I need a sign so that they will believe me. He said, well, here, I have made roses appear. And this was in December when roses would not be in season. So he wrapped them up in his tilma, his tunic. And uh, as legend has it, when he showed them to the Spanish conquerors, they, they dropped to the ground because other than the roses, what had appeared on his tilma was the vision of the Virgin Mary. See, I think it would have been easier just for her to write a sign. You know, essentially, like, Virgin Mary was here, and he could just stick it in the ground. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a bit conspicuous. <laughs> um, so anyway, they built a massive cathedral. Which I've been to, which out-Catholics you, huh? Yeah, I, well, my dad's been there. Oh, so. damn. Sorry. <laughs> But uh, the original one sunk because of the uneven nature of the ground. Right, because it was built on a lake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Anyhow, we've gone off on another little tangent, but that's okay. Uh, as that's is what nature. makes these episodes fun, though, because yeah. the tangents lead to interesting factoids related to the topic. Exactly. 
So, so essentially, they built a school there mm-hmm. uh, in the the heart of what was the Aztec capital, mm-hmm. uh, and this quote unquote re-education period. What was what was typical during that time? What were you seeing happening to the natives? They were being baptized with a Spanish Catholic name. Um, they were being taught about Jesus and about the Catholic religion. And they were made to speak Spanish. They were made to forget all about their ancestors. And it was very sad because when the schools and all the other buildings were built, the people there saw their gods, statues, like broken to pieces, and that same marble was used to build all of this new stuff. Everything was destroyed. Yeah, and yet to draw a parallel, comparing to like the Romans when they spread Christianity around, you know, they didn't forget the pantheon of gods. Uh, They they just said that these were the the old guard, that Christianity has become the the new thing, and yet this is what you're talking about. It's almost like an assimilation technique where everything is just being destroyed. Yeah, the spirits were broken. Yeah. And... They, in a way, they didn't have any other choice than to conform to the new way of living. Right. And that cultural indoctrination kind of carries on to this day because, I mean, as of at one point, Mexico was 97% Catholic, 2% Protestant, 1% Jewish. Those were from censuses from around the, the turn of the millennium. Um, nowadays, Mexico, I believe, is currently about 85% Catholic. So it's still... Uh, very, very big majority yes. of that part of the world. Yes, and a lot of our traditions are because of the Catholic Church. Yeah. There are a lot of traditions because of it. But, yeah, we also have a lot of traditions and food from the Mesoamerica area. Let's talk about food for a second. What survives to us from the Aztecs today? Well, one that I like is quesadilla that we... We'll, no, with clacoche. Yeah, oh, with clacoche. This is the mold, clacoche. right? Is, um, is the little teeth of the corn. I don't know how to say it. They're like moldy. You put in a, in a tortilla with cream, cheese, and it's so good. But can, yeah. we, can we emphasize the moldy part for a second? So, well, hang on. There's also mold in cheese. That's what makes cheese, like blue cheese, happen. Um, so they leave like the corn kernel out so that it just it begins to mold and that's what they uh, yeah kind of they also sauces uh, put other like sauces because when you taste it you don't taste the like the mold the rotten stuff it tastes a little bit different but and what kind of cheese are we talking here oh uh, yes uh, regular white cheese okay well that's a more modern I guess way to prepare it but you should try it it's really good Gotcha. We'll yeah. have to go to La Casita Chilonga sometime. Well, I, I love me a quesadilla. And I mean like a real quesadilla, not like the, I'm just going to take some cherry cheese and put it in a tortilla and throw it in the microwave. I like a real, like, We have this place in, in Redwood City, La Casita Chilonga, which is amazing. You can have a sandwich that's the size of my hat. Or bigger. Probably bigger. Wow. It's huge. It's called La Cubana. La Cubana. So it's not, it's not a torta, then. It's, it it's is. A, it's a torta. With all of the meat that you can think, technically. My friend calls it the death sandwich. I'm pretty sandwich. sure there's like a quarter of a pig in that. <laughs> there is. Described. All different parts of the pig. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> with a breaded steak. It's fantastic. <laughs> with breaded steak in there? Yes. Oh my it's, God. It's, okay, so it's two pieces of Mexican French bread that are lightly buttered and then put on the stove for a short time. And then they take that off and they put in a breaded steak, strips of ham, hot dog slices... Then they go ahead and they crumble fresh cheese all over it. They forgot the chorizo. Oh, so, and the chorizo. There's so, a layer so the of chorizo. Ke- queso fresca? Is the queso what? fresco. Yeah. Queso yep. fresco is put in there. Okay. Uh, and then uh, cut up jalapeno strips. On top of that is like a type of like um, like pickled onion kind of situation going on. Uh, and then they put a, a layer of mayo on the very top. And you can get it with tomato, but I don't normally have a tomato because I don't like fresh tomato. Um, and, and avocado, and I don't eat avocado because I'm, I'm horribly allergic to it. Ironic, though, that I married a woman whose mother makes amazing guacamole, and I'm allergic to avocado. How do you like that? <laughs> but it is awe-inspiring. That sounds amazing. I think I can only have, like, a, like a wedge of it without, <laughs> like, passing out. I can eat an entire cabana. Well, then. And I, it sounds like the name derives from the fact that the Cuban sandwich has, it has some elements to it. Yeah. Like the French bread, the fact that it's toasted, there's a lot of pork product in there yeah. sounds very derivative of mm-hmm. that but um 
But this is food typical but of this Mexico is like, City. This is like a Cuban on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the sandwich, of course. <laughs> Not a person from Cuba. Uh, I mean, when we were talking about the colonialization of Mexico, that's like a 300-year period between then and Mexican independence. So is there anything we want to cover before we get to that pivotal point? Um, do, do, okay, um, in 1571, the Catholic Church builds uh, their first court of El Santo Oficio, and La Santa Inquisición begins, meaning if you don't believe in God, you're dead. Oh, and good. So in other words, the American form of the, the Inquisition yeah. was going on. So, so instead of the Spanish Inquisition, we're talking about the Mexican Inquisition. Yeah, this is the sequel, actually. <laughs> yeah. Not nearly as popular as the first one. The church one. went, okay, the first one went really, really well. I think we're going to give you m much more money this time. And uh, we'll bring back some of the main players and then... Uh, Go with it. Exactly. Yeah, do something new. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have, in the beginning of the reign of Spain... We have La Real Audiencia de México, was the highest tribunal of the Spanish crown in the kingdom of Mexico that used to, that they knew it like that back, back in the day. And a monarchy type of government was established. So was there a king of Mexico or was it just a viceroy? Uh, viceroy. Viceroy, okay. But viceroy. for those who don't know what a viceroy is... King um, de facto. Watch Star Wars Episode One because oh, no, no, I'm kidding. Okay, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Don't watch Star Wars Episode One. That's a uh, terrible suggestion. <laughs> Why would you do that? Well, I'm just trying to draw a parallel for some of them. I have actually heard that term before. Fair enough. Um, Viceroy is a role of a person in an empire who uh, acts on behalf of the king. They actually they have all the powers of a king in a foreign land, but they are not the official king of that country. They they still report to the king of their derivative country. Right. Uh, India had a viceroy. Canada had a viceroy. Uh, I don't think this, the American colonies had an official viceroy. They did not. They did no, not have Because the colonies were all so individual from one another. They were all so autonomous from one another. They were almost treated like separate, uh, yeah. well, colonies, really. They really just had governors yeah. who reported back to the crown. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that was the one unique difference, I think, with, the, with America. But as far as other colonies go, Many times in the British colonies and in the Spanish colonies, there would be uh, viceroys in other countries. But if we jump forward then to around the 1650s, then we jump into New Spain. Then we jump into the colonial period, the traditional colonial period of Mexico. Right. And whereas we had a, a much more hostile period before this, right, where there was a lot of conquest going on, there were a lot of tribal leaders that were being brought into check, there was a lot of kind of uh, co coalescing, if you will, of the country into one. Now, during this period, it seems like less fractured situation. There's more of a centralized uh, government and economy uh, and language now, and it's becoming more the, the hallmarks of a colony, like you would have found in the Americas, for example. Yeah. Uh, yes, you could see, like, in books and stuff like that, even in movies, 1920 movies and old movies, people were... Um, dressing more Spanish-like, like, like wom women used to have like this very elaborate Spanish headdresses with like the veil. Everybody was settling more into the new, new Spain, the new way of life, and and it was also one of the richest time in a way Mexico had at, in all its its history. Um, the new Spain with Spain had become the most rich country in the world at that time, technically. Wow. wow. Just because of the that. sheer exports of everything that they were producing? Uh, or is it also a, that plus kind of the, the sheer mineral wealth that the country had available to it? I think both. Yeah. And I emphasize, I think both. Yeah. Well, I mean, keep in mind that, you know, just prior to this, they had essentially converted the Americas into a slave population. I mean, the, the, the natives, right, were treated as slave labor for the majority oh, of that time. Yes. Yeah. There were, they, no, there were no rights for them. Right. And they could just be sent off to whatever dangerous environment they wanted to extract as much gold as possible, as much silver as possible, as much, you know, uh, work in the fields until they, they fell, fell down dead. They just didn't care. And there was a, a huge discrepancy, even in this time period, where you had the native people being treated essentially as, as a serf-type population. They were not equal in any way. This is a fascinating thing, because when I think of the colonization, 
of Mexico. I can't help but draw the parallels to the to the colonization of, of Northern America, or not by well, it is North America, but of the United States. Uh, what would become the United States? What I find interesting is the dichotomy there. The British colonists were coming to just make a new life for themselves. They weren't coming necessarily to necessarily to conquer. I mean, no. yes, of course they did. Yeah. But their primary objective was to just live that that life. And of course, they treated the Native Americans like crap. But that seems to be the strong parallel there. Right. Uh, I don't know that necessarily the Spanish came to make a, make a new life. I think they came to exploit the peoples there and make a lot of money off of yeah, them. Yeah, well, I think it was evident with Cortez. You know, here he is being treated like a god. Everyone's being rather nice to him. All of a sudden, he turns around and sticks a knife in their back. And for what? For gold. They melted down the vast majority of ancient Aztec gold and, and sent it back uh, to be turned into, uh, into gold bars and bricks and be uh, distributed as wealth in the Spanish Empire. Right, and that makes sense of why the legend of El Dorado became so pertinent to the Spanish is because you have the chief export. Yeah. <laughs> A whole city made out of it, so that makes sense. So then when we get to this whole period of colonialism, we really have probably the most stable point in that time, in, the, in that era for Mexico. And it's really not until the, the 19th century that things start to dramatically change for the political landscape of that area. So um, let's talk a little bit about how Mexico gained its independence from Spain. So about uh, the beginning of the 1800s, the Nuevo Hispanos, or uh, called the Criollos, were beginning to rattle and rebel against the Spanish government. They were feeling that it was not fair that they were... um, still being governed by somebody that wasn't even there, that didn't know their needs and stuff like that. And so that, uh, jumping 10 years forward, on the 16th of September, uh, Priest Miguel Hidalgo Costilla goes up in arms in the town of Dolores, Guanajuato, with the, I don't know how it's called, the banner of the Virgen de Guadalupe. The banner of the... Okay, well, the banner of the, of the Lady of Guadalupe is fine. Yeah, okay, the banner of the Lady of Guadalupe saying, like, uh, it's time to independence, and there's where we have the Grito de Dolores every 16th of September in the Zócalo. So, what is it? The uh, Grito de Dolores? El Grito de Dolores. So, the, what does the Grito mean? The Grito is... <laughs> the cry, right? The like cry. The so, the cry of sadness. Dolo- no, the cry of... Uh, Dolores is um, from the city of Guanajuato. Oh, 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 oh. So the people are essentially crying Sorry. out an uprising. I was mixing yeah. my Spanish and Latin because <laughs> do- Dolores or Dolorosa uh, means sadness uh, in, in Latin. So That's unfortunate for anyone named Dolores. It is very, very unfortunate. That name sounds great. It's just so cheerful. What's your name? My name's Dolores. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're so cheery about it. Look at the meaning of my name and understand. <laughs> I hate my parents. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, the, the call that they were essentially shouting was independence and death to the Spaniards. Yeah. Yep. This is why my, my most Doloreses are called D. I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> they screw to go by D. Uh, but anyway, yes, Spaniards, yes. Death to the Spaniards. And this was in 1810, 1810. right? 1810. Yeah, 1810. Yes. And, so and this was a long war for independence, too, because it wasn't until 1821 that most historians agree that that was the time where Mexico was an independent country. Yes, February 24th of 1821. Yeah, but the road to get there was very interesting because, and what happened in 1814? So in 1814, you know, Napoleon's forces in Spain are essentially pulled back, and Spain as a rightful monarchy is reinstated. Uh, And whereas, you know, here we had an opportunity with Napoleon coming in and causing all these problems with Spain, which gave Mexico an opportunity to really make this uprising and do it proper and and declare its independence. the Spanish Navy was was weakened at that point. Yeah, they were occupied with other things going on. Now, that wasn't the case. And now they came back and ended up actually executing uh, Morelos in uh, in 1815. Uh, And this caused a a huge fracture in the country, um, which would eventually lead to... Uh, another individual kind of rising to the rebellion, uh, and they form what is essentially kind of like a, um, well, I guess you would call it kind of like a, a Mexican monarchy. Really. Yeah, it was the first Mexican empire. Yes. Yeah. 
which I find fascinating. There was not the king of Mexico, it was the emperor of Mexico. Because <laughs> yeah. that implies that all the regions within Mexico were treated like territories or yeah. like states, yeah. Yeah, his name, I, his name was Iturbide, the first emperor of Mexico. Augustine. Augustine. Augustine, excuse Augustine me. Augustine de Iturbide. Iturbide. Yeah, they all have very big, lofty names to <laughs> yeah. it, to, don't they? But his monarchy, his reign was very short-lived because uh, in by any even by 1821, that was or 1820, I think is what you said was when he was ousted, correct? Uh, no, it was 1821 is when he came into power. Oh, uh, my it, it was 1824 uh, when he was eventually overthrown. He was, okay, so he had a reign of maybe three years, and at that point they had a constitution that was declared that made them the United Mexican States. Yes, and it was at this time that they also declared Catholicism to, to essentially be their official and unique religion. Interesting. So that's when, even though it had been so heavily ingrained in everyone before that time, this is when it had actually officially been recognized as being the official religion of Mexico. Very interesting. So now we finally see what is, I mean, it's not really close to, but we, we see another democratic nation appear in North America. And let's let's look at this from a global perspective for a quick moment, because it is a fascinating time, because the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America had occurred only, you know, a few short years before everything. Maybe 50 years at this point. Yeah, or, or really, I mean, if you, if you really think about it, 1810, right? So America had only been really a, a well-established and organized country for, what, 20 years or so at that point? Thereabouts, yeah. I mean, we had declared our independence, but we had to fight to get our independence. Well, we weren't recognized as a country until 1783, and we didn't have the Constitution ratified until 1788. Right. Or 1787, sorry. You know, not only that, but we didn't even have a first president until much later as well. 1789, so, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're looking at a time where, in America, there are sweeping changes that are going on. Uh, in France, there are sweeping changes going yeah, on. Yeah, they have the French Revolution going on. Exactly. And so, so it makes perfect sense that our neighbors to the south would also have similar sentiments and similar ideas. What I find interesting, though, and what is so characteristic of just those first 20 or so odd years is you have, whereas in America you had a much more, you had a much more organized leadership that was essentially taking control, right? So we had some big people in the colonies that came together through the Continental Congress who fiercely debated their role and what they wanted to do and eventually decided on warfare. And afterwards, a lot of those same figures were still in a position of power. They had kind of organized and led the war. Now they were in a natural transition point to move into that. Whereas in Mexico, you didn't have that same uh, opportunity. You didn't have all the same wealthy individuals who could come together because the, the climate was so different. It was so much put on the people to be poor and depressed and uh, essentially trampled on by their wealthy Spanish overlords that they didn't have those same kind of figures who could rally and, and pull the community together. Right. They had certain individuals who were representing their cause and were very much respected. But you had so many of them that you had this kind of fracturing going on. And they didn't have that same kind of coalition that ended up happening in America. And it just led to all of these kind of ups and downs, up and downs, up and downs that would be so characteristic of the rest of Mexican yeah. political Well, I'll make another history. argument here. And I'll make it even simpler. Let's be honest. I mean, the American forefathers were so successful is because they were rich. Yeah. They had resources. They could, and they had influence within the country. Um, all the major forefathers, John Adams was a successful lawyer. Uh, Washington had inherited money and had lots of farmland. Um, and was a successful colonel in the military. You know, he had the respect of, uh, of you know, the American French, or uh, sorry, the American Indian War. Yeah, exactly. John Hancock had a successful... Uh, a very prosperous shipping business. Um, Samuel also, Adams made amazing beer. It's true. He did, in <laughs> fact, make amazing beer. Uh, I know you were joking, but it's, <laughs> it's true, though. It is very true. Uh, who, of course, was the cousin of John Adams. So, you know, you've got... They have that going for them. Right. They, they, they're educated enough. They're sophisticated enough. And I don't want to say that the Mexican people were not sophisticated. They had enough resources where they could organize a revolution to a much more effective means. Oh, they were skillful, ta skillful tacticians. They had they had the amazing ability, as we would see later when the French tried to invade, the ability to repel superior military forces because of the ingenuity that had their resources. Unfortunately, though, like I said, and like what you're you know leading to with your point is that 
when you have a populace that is essentially kept down, not given those same opportunities like they had in the American colonies to rise up in power and wealth, uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult for those individuals to be able to, you know, carry things on and, and, and keep things going. Exactly. No matter how much they have in their heart, no matter how much they have in their wits and their skills and their intelligence, they just didn't have the money, as sick as that is, to lead a revolution for freedom. There you go. What and do you think, the money Because <laughs> It wasn't even the money because, I mean, not to take too much of attention on the United States, but do you have people who have to know how to get the money, right? I mean, we were able to get the money for the... We didn't bankroll the revolution on our own, out of our own pockets. The forefathers were, were very financially sound. And, and smart enough to know how to do that. But they did go to other European countries, right? So France helped out a little bit. Uh, particularly, America got a big loan from the Netherlands to bankroll the revolution. And that was actually the thing that established our credit, with financially speaking. So, yeah, there you go. I can actually see a very interesting alternate reality, whereas you had a kind of a reverse situation going on, that because of all of the wealth and prosperity in America, that some of our leading forefathers could not put past their own vanity and would end up essentially competing with each other to the point where you would have the states fracturing in their unity. And a similar situation happening in America that instead it happened in Mexico. Whereas in Mexico, you had a, a situation where you would have all these people coming together and finally sick of their, their tyrants putting aside uh, any petty differences and, and, and more or less not caring about who was the more successful one in the campaign to get rid of people and having a much more stable We really need to do an episode government. on the American Revolution because what you're saying is not too far from the truth. It's true. It's a more exaggerated outcome from what could have happened. Right. So, I, I agree. Going back to Mexico, though, getting back to <laughs> yes. uh, what happened. So, of course, when you have this, these people fighting for independence, they go back to this thing, the thing they already know, which is a monarchy, a monarchical system. And that's largely because Spain had the system in place, and they had gained enough power from winning the war uh, against Napoleon in their homeland to reestablish it. But then we finally go back to having a republic. There are now two democracies in the Western Hemisphere, which is awesome. And they drew their inspiration from, from the United States, right? They yes. even called their things a constitutional decree. Yeah. And well, when we go more forward in time, like to the time of Benito Juarez, there's a lot of things that Benito Juarez government um, took from the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, and it's Benito, very interesting. Yeah, go ahead. No, it's very interesting how to see that both countries being so much intertwined in history. Yeah, Benito Juarez is a very important individual. But you know what? I think we're going to have to get to him next time, though. Yeah, we've already run out of time. We're only halfway through what we want to talk exactly. about. Exactly. I think we have a part two on our hands, folks. Sounds good to me. What about you, babe? Yeah, wonderful. So we got them independent, we got them democratic, and then we leave you hanging. Sorry about that. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, we will be back next week with a, even with Martha will be back, and we will continue the history of Mexico up until the present, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there you have it. Folks, uh, thank you so much for listening. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, hi, how are you? Welcome. Um, you can subscribe to us, if you like us, on both iTunes and on Stitcher Radio, as well as uh, if you like what we're saying on the mic, you can follow us on Twitter as well. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I am at the Brickmont. And of course, you can follow our company at Nerdonomy as well and keep track of all of our updates for our blog and our episodes. Oh, yeah, we're all over social media. So head on over to Facebook, check us out, give us a like on there. Uh, if you want to continue the conversations that we have here, please go ahead and give us listener feedback. You can go to our website, nerdonomy.com, click on the listener feedback button, and we get all of your lovely conversations and uh, requests for episodes and all sorts of good stuff uh, via email. So please go ahead and send those in. Hey, you know what, Eric? You know what else you can do on nerdonomy.com? Right below listener feedback. Uh, yes, I believe you can uh, file a petition to have uh, Brian declared as Pope. Damn. You knew, <laughs> you, you knew that that was coming. Um, yeah, that's not going to happen. Uh, or there's the donation button, which is what I think you're actually talking about. Which will about. go to the campaign to get me named Pope. Exactly, yes. yes. <laughs> um, uh, please go ahead. If you can find it in your heart and in your wallet, uh, we here at Nerdonomy do not make any money doing this. And uh, we do love it, though, very much. And we'd like to bring it to you each and every single week. So please help support us by giving us a donation. Even a couple of dollars, honestly, makes a big difference. So uh, whatever you can. Yeah. You know, if you can't, which I get it, 
you know, economy, Martha and I, we got two kids, we know what it's all about. Um, go ahead and just tell people about us. Yeah. Word of mouth is the most powerful means of marketing. Especially your rich friends. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and seriously, no amount is too small. I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but we have gotten donations as, as small as $5.42. Yeah, which was fantastic, and we love it. If everyone gave us $5.42, uh, we would have a significant amount yeah. of money. Yeah. And it is not just to pad our pockets. I promise you what we need to do is we need to insulate our ceiling yep. to make our new air conditioner that has been bought because of you guys' donations uh, more effective. Mm-hmm. We also are. We have a computer we're trying to pay off, and we're also launching a video initiative. So any additional money left over from those two, yep, all being channeled into the Nerdonomy Presents uh, video campaign. Exactly. So your money would go to good use. And you know what? I'll even say this: if you guys make a donation, you of course will get a shout out on our podcast. And if your money goes to part of our videos, you'll get a special thanks. Ooh, great idea. In the credits. I love it. And also, don't forget to send us your uh, British version of our uh, of our opening for our listener feedback. And remember, it is this week in listener feedback. We want it in that wordage, uh, but with your British accent. And if we uh, like yours the most, it'll be featured on the show. The posher, the better. Oh, yes. <laughs> Martha, my love, my dear, uh, my, my, my Aztec goddess, <laughs> I thank you. So very much for being on the show. I just love, and I'm going to get sentimental here for a moment. I You're getting just, sentimental. I am. Oh, boy. Aww. Yes. I don't get sentimental. I get sentimental usually. I, I'm reversing the roles here. There you go. Um, <laughs> I just love that every part of my life you can be a part of, including my podcasting. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been cool that you've been here. Oh, thank you, Brian. <laughs> no, no. That was very sweet, sir. Thank you. I'll thank you later. So, oh, yay. <laughs> I should go. <laughs> uh, but you'll be with us next week, yes? Yes. Excellent, because we couldn't do it without Indeed. you. And uh, until then, folks, stay nerdy, and you can hear us uh, next time, same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Goodbye! Thank you! Thank you!